Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello folks, it's Ben here. Welcome along to episode 40 of A Small Voice. Thank you very much for joining me. Let's all do our best to keep calm and carry on in the face of what seems to all intents and purposes to be the end of civilization as we know it. Who knows, perhaps something better will emerge from the wreckage that we find ourselves sitting in. Which, if you can figure your dates as we do in the UK with the day and then the month, is of course 9-11. While you ponder that one, I shall introduce my guest. This week I chat with Gideon Mendel whose intimate style of image making and long-term commitment to projects has earned him international recognition and many awards over a 30-plus year career as a documentary photographer and social activist. He was born in Johannesburg, South Africa in 1959, studied psychology and African history at the University of Cape Town and began photographing in the 1980s during the dark days of apartheid. It was his work as a so-called struggle photographer at this time that brought him to global attention. In the early 1990s, he moved to London, from where he continued to respond to global social issues, notably his longitudinal project on the impact of HIV and AIDS. That photographic odyssey began in Africa, taking in eight countries, and expanded to numerous other nations during the past 20 years. And the concluding and ongoing chapter, Through Positive Eyes, is a collaborative project in which Mendel's role shifted from photographer to enabler, handing over his camera to HIV-positive people. His first book, A Broken Landscape, HIV and AIDS in Africa was published in 2001. Since then, he has produced a number of photographic advocacy projects, working with charities and campaigning organisations, including the Global Fund, Medicine Sans Frontieres, the Terence Higgins Trust, UNICEF and Concern Worldwide. Since 2007, Gideon has been occupied with Drowning World, an art and advocacy project about flooding that is his personal response to climate change. And this work has been applauded for its unusual approaches to portraiture and the development of a variety of visual strategies and elements, including video, to deepen the impact of the endeavour. Among many other accolades, he has won the Eugene Smith Award for Humanistic Photography, six World Press Photo Awards, first prize in the Pitch of the Year competition, uh, the Amnesty International Media Award for Photojournalism. He was shortlisted for the Pre-Pictay Prize 2015 for Drowning World, which more recently also won a Greenpeace Photo Award, a fact that I neglected to mention during the interview. Here's Gideon Mendel. I was going to ask you about what you've been up to, because I know you've been to, to the, the so-called jungle in Calais. The week that they cleared the place, or in theory they cleared the place. So what took you there? What made you go? I am working on one of my own small self-assigned, self-initiated projects, um, which I call Displaces. And, I mean, essentially the heart of it is I'm collecting objects from the jungle camp in Calais, which I feel have some kind of meaningful charge, that they have some kind of energy to them, objects which say something about the place and the history. Um, it, it sort of began, the whole thing began, in fact, a couple of months ago when I was teaching, working on a kind of collaborative photography project in the, in the camp, which arguably was not the most successful project I've done, partly through disorganisation, but I think largely through a miscalculation in terms of, you know, the, the concept was all the you know, hundreds of photographers and outsiders passing through the camp with cameras. It'd be much more interesting to see an authentic vision of the migrants themselves photographing themselves and self-representing in some sort of way. What we didn't realise was that somehow 
the migrants there didn't take much pride in the life they were leading in the camp. So we didn't, there wasn't much of an urge to, to, to photograph where they were. And some of them, you know, did it because they were trying to please us, but it wasn't, we didn't tap into any kind of need for a particular energy towards self-representation right. amongst the people there. And unlike, you know, many of my other collaborative projects where there was an amazing, where I've, I've tapped into and I'm quite an amazing energy in a, mm. in a particularly my Through Positive Eyes project mm. um, where there's quite a you know where, where we've where we tapped into really quite an authentic visual and striking voice yeah. that didn't happen in the jungle and um, I actually found myself one day and it was shortly after the south side of the jungle camp had been demolished leaving behind a place called Jungle Books which was a sort of school and I had a morning where I was feeling very dismal and disturbed by the place mm. um, and also quite upset because we'd had been expecting a whole lot of people to, to turn up for a teaching session with the cameras we left with them and only one out of 12 had turned up at, on that morning and I suppose Sunday mornings is a bad time to expect to do anything particularly when so many people are busy late into the night trying to cross the channel mm. um, but I was sort of left, my, my colleague, my teacher with Crispin Hughes, went off to do a masterclass with the one person who turned up, Adam. And I was left guarding our laptops and sort of looking at this area where we were around Jungle Books. And I kind of began to, this urge to almost kind of forensically examine this mountain of debris you know, kind of, kind of surrounding me. And I began to look at and collect and try and organize some objects. And initially I began thinking, well, maybe I'll try and just photograph objects, shoes, discard, various discarded things I'd seen. There were a lot of um, tear gas canisters, which I found quite striking as mm. sort of objects. Um, and then I, I, I kind of began digging a bit deeper and looking around and just finding things which I thought reflected life in the place and said to me quite a lot um and so i began to get more engaged with it and sort of almost position myself like a kind of contemporary archaeology archaeologist mm. sort of collecting objects which are kind of meaningful prior to a thousand years of sedimentation falling on them mm. because I, I think some of the objects i've collected sp speak quite strongly um and you know for me the jungle represents the kind of end point of a completely messed up, failed policy with, you know, wars and a miserable response to, 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 to migration. And a sense of world where there's areas of both, you know, relative wealth and poverty, but also areas of safety and danger. Mm. And, you know, a natural urge of people to want to move to areas a, of safety and areas where um, there's more more you know, possibilities of making a life and earning an income. Mm. Um, you know, so it's a, it's a kind of real product of that kind of divided world. And the jungle was a kind of pimple on pimple with all those kind of global toxins yeah, yeah, <laughs> flowing out. And um, having been there and kind of seen so many photographers and so many visitors poking cameras all around the place, I kind of felt the last thing I wanted to do was lift up the camera and take photographs myself right. in there. And, was that, look, look, yeah. looking to find another kind of response yeah yeah no that that's kind of why i wanted to ask you about it because that that's kind of what struck me because i knew i knew you'd 
been there because you put some stuff up on your Instagram page and and I thought it's a very newsy kind of story for you and it, it, it was sort of quite surprised me that you were there in a way because I could imagine you wouldn't want to do that kind yeah, of stuff yeah. you know and that you'd have to find a different way of doing it but it's quite interesting that what you actually the, the thing that you've ended up doing came out of it was a kind of necessity as the what is it mother of invention yes, yes. Um, it came out of the fact that everything went a bit r- wrong really and also it came out of the fact I kind of I wanted to find some sort of response, and I just actually thought I came to see that a photographic response in there was in all kinds of all kinds of photography just felt wrong. You know, um, I, I actually I, I was I had a very on that very peculiar day. I just saw all these bizarre kind of inputs coming into the place. There was a a Spanish circus came through with jugglers and um, tightrope walkers. And and uh, <laughs> along with that, a, um, a Christian procession with a healing donkey right. came okay. through. And and I, and I, I, I had a moment where there was a, an Eritrean church, and the healing donkey went into the Eritrean church, and I thought, it's so bizarre, I must try and take a picture of it just somehow. And, and I was thinking maybe it was a way to photograph all the outsiders. But I went into this church, and I had a, a small camera with me. And this guy there kind of nailed me just so articulately. You know, he said to me, just fuck off, you and your, you and you and you photographers. You know, you come here and you take our pictures and you tell us it's going to make a difference. And the only person your pictures help is, is you. Mm. And we tell our stories to you over and over again and you tell us it's going to help us, but it, nothing, nothing changes. Yeah. Um, and I, I kind of, I just thought, you know, you know, that, that's just... That just nails everything yeah, in a way, yeah, doesn't it, in terms yeah. of photojournalism. But and, 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 uh, and, 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 I mean... Thinking about it more, I just think, you know, despite, you know, there's the whole debate with photojournalism, documentary photography, are you saying something about the issue? Are you just taking pictures in a careerist way to build your name and your reputation and, Mm. you know, make an impression of how good your images are? You know, what's it all about? And I think in terms of the migrant crisis, despite, you know, which is obviously manifestly the kind of compassionate um, impulses of many photographers who've tried to photograph it, Mm. often the end result of the images is actually adding to stigma and adding to fear. And, you know, arguably, one of the factors which helped to swing the Brexit vote in this country was the picture used by by UKIP of all the migrants queuing, queuing up in Hungary. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was a very powerful picture <clears throat> used incredibly well and intelligently in the publicity with a photographer who his intention was compas- compassionate, yeah, exactly. but actually the, the result of the image was quite yeah. the opposite. So... It, it feels like, felt to me like uh, I couldn't see a photographic response which was appropriate. And I, I, from what I saw of all the kind of collaborative, you know, there have been various collaborative mm. impulses, mm. which from what I can see, neither the process nor the product was particularly particularly interesting. Mm. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's very opposite because um, I, the person I spoke to previously to, to you is um, a young a guy called Daniel um, Castro-Garcia. Who who's done a book called Foreigner, which is partly in in Calais, but the whole deals with the whole migration crisis, and and I think his kind of his agenda really was to collaborate and to do some portraits, and for the people in them to be very much part of the process, as it were. And it is you know it's really nice stuff, and it does work really well. Do you think it's a success? It depends how you quantify that, I suppose, doesn't it? It's a great photo book. Uh, and a lot of people who like photo books will look at it. But is it a success in, in terms of, 
a kind of photojournalistic agenda. I, d- I doubt it. Um, I don't even know if, if if he would consider himself a photojournalist. But I think it's it's the absolute defining question, isn't it? And you've had a whole career of working within documentary photography. So it's interesting that you're still kind of tussling with those questions yourself yeah, in a way. Yeah, and I think photojournalism is a very tired medium at the moment. Um, you know, and, and, and it's an, you know, not not in a very good frame of mind, in my yeah. in my opinion. And I mean, I think it needs injections of new ideas and new. And I think a lot of people are trying different kinds of conceptual approaches to mm. and mixing mixing things up a bit. And I think some of the most interesting photography at the moment is happening on the borderlines of documentary and art. Yeah, um, yeah, but, I agree. Yeah, but I mean, so, so just to finish off with the, the jungle, you know, although you know, I was I've been doing some Instagramming and putting a few pictures out there. I mean, that's really. Ten percent of what I'm, mm. of what I'm doing there. I mean, my main agenda is kind of collecting things. Yeah. So I, I was um, scurrying around the um, the jungle in the last few days, um, g- collecting you know more, more, more objects. I, mean, mm. I, I have I, I, what I've got a lot of this time were kind of a lot of bits of burnt furniture from the shops which had burnt down just before I arrived. Right. Um, a burnt bicycle, various burnt objects. Um, and for, for the material I'm, I'm collecting, there are kind of two pathways for what I'm doing. The one pathway is displaying the real objects and figuring out a variety of installations um, with the actual objects. Um, so the, the two pieces which I sort of have done, which are kind of resolved for me, is a piece I made... Um, which I call 59 toothbrushes, which is a collection of toothbrushes, mm. basically kind of glued onto a board with tarpaulin. T- um, and for me, the toothbrushes in their physical reality speak really powerfully, you know, that they're objects which still contain the DNA mm. um, of the migrants who are there. They, you know, they are um, in pretty bad condition. And, you know, they're just eight water points, or they were just eight water points right. in the, at the jungle. And... Um, and people, a lot of people responded very strongly, very emotionally to the objects. And another piece I did was basically just was, 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 was called 14 tear gas canisters. Mm. And it's, it's just a collection of tear gas canisters, which I placed neatly into a vitrine. Yeah. And kind of elevating them as if they're kind of museum objects. Mm, mm, mm. And that's what the kind of project is about for me. And right. alongside, so, so along, and I have a lot of other objects and I'm hoping I might get some kind of show at some point or some, or even just have an event some sort to display them but then i'm also taking the the objects and particularly groupings of objects and photographing them in a, in a studio and photographing them in a very forensic scientific kind of way um using a you know linhoff field camera with a you know a kind of high-end dig- digital back right. so making the, the highest resolution kind of pictures possible and i'm not trying to photograph them in patterns or in a decorative way, but just trying to arrange things neatly and precisely. Mm. And it's quite it's quite a challenge sometimes to make it, you know, when you're positioning things to make a note, can't look in any way patterned or decorative. It needs to be yeah, yeah, yeah. just as if, as if it's a kind of precise, yeah. precise record of objects. So, you know, from burnt bits of clothing to playing cards to a discarded, you know, sanitary towel to mm. kids' toys to a whole... Kind of, you know, kind of, kind of variety of objects, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm photographing them in this very forensic manner, mm. which is a departure for you, isn't yeah, it? Absolutely, and mm. it's a, it's a whole technical 
you know challenge challenge to, yeah. to, to do that um and again i mean i think people have are responding quite strongly to the to the mm. results but i'm still you know in the in the middle in the middle of the process and they kind of three aspects to it the, the one is kind of groupings of objects the other one is just individual objects um, and that, both of those I've spent some time doing it and the other thing I haven't really begun doing yet but I think might be interesting as well is just doing some details and textures of objects mm, mm. so there's kind of three different yeah, components yeah. of that so it seems like you're someone who's move, who's kind of moving towards like you say kind of the, the division between photography and art and and a more conceptual approach or approach which which doesn't even necessarily involve photography at the moment. Yeah, well, that's that's it's quite a departure for me, but it mm. is it, it's it's kind it's I think kind of interesting. I mean, I think a note was said about me, kind of when I was working on my kind of the second phase, the kind of color more kind of conceptual activist phase of my HIV work, mm. that it was kind of the end of me as a photojournalist because I lost any kind of objectivity and I became kind of committed to a very distinct core, you know, my kind of work with treatment action campaign, I became tied into a cause and sort of lost a, lost a, mm. I became more of a campaigning activist mm. photographer than a, a, a journalist and, a, and then a traditional photojournalist. And I think that that has been a kind of a journey for me. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I do think at the moment, I mean, look, I think cynically, you can say, well, you know, so many documentary photographers have been trying to reinvent themselves as artists mm. in, the la- in the last 10 years um, and if you can take a cynical view and say well you know that's be kind of because of you know decline of photojournalism the decline of income you might earn as a documentary photographer or photojournalist you've got to try and mm. find another income stream and kind of reinvent yourself and yeah, yeah. and, 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 pivot, and as they say yeah. these days <laughs> pivot. Yeah. and you know you know the kind of you could you know you know that kind of image of the you know, American embassy in Saigon is the, the kind of you know, people were kind of trying to clamber onto the helicopters. Mm. You know, sometimes you have a sense of a, the kind of, you know, the kind of uh, documentary photographers trying to you know, clamber onto the art helicopter, yeah. which might a little kind of lift them away from, <laughs> yeah. from, from, from the collapsing. Edifice of what <laughs> used to be a, a, yeah. a, a profession. Yeah. yeah. And every um, man for himself or woman. Yeah. 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 Um, so I, I, I like to think that I'm, that I'm not trying to consciously remake my remake myself as an artist but I have found that my work in you know in my recent work in particular um works has been working very comfortably in a variety of art art contexts yeah um and it's, you know they it seems seems to work in that environment and is and um i you know i, I kind of see in a way my I think people like to pigeonhole you and say, well, he's this kind of photographer or that kind of photographer. Yeah. And I think there are three sort of points to the triangle of my work. You know, the kind of one is I've got a very strong and long-term basis of working in the magazine mm. photojournalistic world. And my work is still kind of widely published. Most, you know, kind of most recently, you know, I had a big spread of my drowning world work in National Geographic. Yeah. So and my work does work well in, the, in a kind of journalistic context. Um, and then the other kind of point of the triangle is that my work is increasingly being used in an activist mm. context and you know um, you can see the, this, the, those shields which were made to be part of the COP21 conference the Art, Art COP mm. event and the, and the big sort of climate change march um, which unfortunately didn't happen right <laughs> but we made 95 shields to be part of the red, that and the red line protests yeah yeah in Paris um, 
And, you know, it's a, you know in a, my, I had a big poster exhibition around Paris prior to COP21. And, you know, my, my work, you know, works as kind of mm. climate change activism mm. as well. Yeah, and, and I think you, you've been making that, you know, in a way that's, that's been, a, it's been a while since you've been, you know, t- like you say, it goes back to your HIV yes, work, of course, really, and making, making that transition for yeah, a while. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, going back to sort of my start of my kind of work in South Africa, kind of, I suppose, being part of a kind of a generation of kind of struggle, mm. you know, kind of political, political photographers. And I think, uh, I think maybe having come of age as a photographer in, in the kind of 80s in South Africa, I was sort of tarred with that brush yeah, of kind of always thinking of, you know, what is the purpose of my, you know, that I'm not just out there to, uh, I mean, partly have to acknowledge, you know, that, that, that I, I always do want to have a career and I do want to earn a living and I do want to, you know, have recognition as a photographer, but that it's always important to me that my images have a purpose and mm. and, and act in the world in some sort of way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, whether you can see images or sets of images as kind of tools of visual advocacy, mm. you know, making things which actually can work and have some kind of impact. Yeah. Um, and and so so then I was just coming to the third point of the triangle, which is kind of presenting work in a kind of variety of art contexts, and I think it's particularly interesting for me because there's a lot of freedom what you can do you know and you know I, I don't think being in that context means you have to compromise on being political or, or making kind of statements in the world mm. I mean I think some people in the there are voices in the art world you know particularly in South Africa who've said about me well you know that my work is too politically engaged to be valid as art Right. So what is it? And, so and, it's and, too politically engaged to be valid as photojournalism. It's too. It's always like you know. Yeah, yeah you can't. You can't get right. But I mean, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, I think. I'm really not afraid to kind of mix it up, and you know, mm. and 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 also, I suppose, I'm getting used to the fact of also having making work to be sold as commodities, which which is the kind of what you have to do if you want to, I suppose, be in that world of yeah, making course. making objects which might be you know, kind of purchased and used yeah, yeah. kind of decoratively as object, you know, as, as, as you mm. know, making the physical print, which is a, a commodity you sell as opposed to yeah. the, the actual image. Yeah, yeah. It seems to me strange that anyone would say that, you, you know, that how can art be too political? You know, politics yeah. and art, those things have always gone together. And, and also the, the idea that you lost your credibility as a photojournalist because you weren't objective seems to me a very kind of old-fashioned way of looking at things now because I thought we were all past the fact or past the idea that anything's really objective yeah. would you agree yeah yes absolutely absolutely but so yeah so you you grew up in in South Africa in in, in the middle of apartheid yeah I mean I, I, I grew up I suppose in South Africa you know born in 1959 so kind of my formative years were probably in the dark darkest days of apartheid mm. I grew up in a kind of confused situation with parents who were in fact German Jewish immigrants right. who were themselves I suppose victims of the Holocaust in, in some sort of way my, my father's mother died in the Holocaust right. um, he's actually his real father actually died in the First World War right. fighting for Germany so it's quite a interesting situation I grew up mm. with parents who I suppose despite that background you know were part of a sort of lifestyle generation of kind of urban English speaking liberal, anguished, but not very active white South Africans. Right. You know, so I grew up in, 
white suburbia in South Africa where, although we were living in Africa, the reference points were Europe and America. You know, so if 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 I was thinking about any kind of protest, it was Bob Dylan and mm, yeah, um, you know, we, you know, we, we we kind of you created this weird sort of world of of some sort of barricaded yeah yeah west west westernness yeah, and and my parents, my background, my parents were not particularly active. They were kind of anguished. You know, they weren't part of that grouping of kind of I suppose whites who were actually political and did things and took risks, they were part of the much larger grouping of kind of guilty, yeah. guilty anguished right, people right. who were always thinking about leaving and their own safety and danger and, you know, um, okay. so they were, you guilty, know. guilty non, non-active liberals. Right. And, um, and were you influenced by, by them? them poli- I mean, did they, you know, kind of influence you politically or not, was it just not particularly obvious? Yeah, yeah not, I mean, I, I, I grew up feeling, you know, I suppose guilty and I think in some guilt about the privilege and, you know, the knowledge that as a white South African I was, you know, being well-educated and well-fed and having privileges which black South Africans my age weren't having. I mean, a, a, a black person born in my generation would firstly have had much less resources put into their education, um, you know, as... Um, for Wood said, you know, the, the leader of the country, you know, blacks must be educated to be to be the hewers of wood and the drawers of water, and not be educated above their mm. standard. Mm. Um, they were going into the job reservation system where they, were, they weren't allowed to do certain jobs. You know, it, it was a pretty, yeah, pretty kind of rough situation. I felt, I suppose, guilty and powerless. Mm. Um, and then I kind of had my university education, and I guess I was part of that sort of academic what is called the kind of ivory tower left of kind of you know sort of universities in South Africa um but I, I suppose became quite politicized began to I studied African economic history I learned a lot about kind of the politics and the history of South Africa mm. and um I had no idea really that I had much of a kind of photographic ability um you know and it was really only after you know after after I kind of finished university that I sort of found photography and it was like a sort of a a river I fell into you know I found I could mm. do it and I never studied photography it was something I was completely self-taught yeah well, and, what, what interested you about it then initially well I I suppose it was somehow, somehow it, it was a matter of kind of finding a visual voice mm. um and I found it, it just it, there was a kind of affinity for me. It, it was a way of speaking which for me was, was felt deeper than words. And I think as I became more active and you know began to photograph, I found it was actually a, a way I could say something and act in in South Africa. It was the first time I felt as a white South African I could mm. do something. And also, it gave me amazing access to what was happening in the country. You know, yeah. I was suddenly in the midst of yeah. the kind of this. World, you know, you know, and, and what actually was happening at the same time in the kind of mid '80s, mm. there was this major kind of mobilisation happening in South Africa. You know, after the '76 student uprising, which happened actually when I was just finishing school, there'd been this massive clampdown, and things were very kind of locked down, with the ANC in exile very ineffectively, and a very kind of crushed opposition in South Africa and then from the mid-80s there was the emergence of this organisation the United Democratic Front which is a kind of a loose 
alliance of community organizations but there was although there was a kind of allegiance on one level to the external african national congress it was a quite a flowering of kind of internal leadership and organizational building and organizational development and um mobilization and happening there was this kind of youth development of all these variety of youth organizations and the state responded really harshly and there was this whole cycle mm. of you know youth being killed and funerals and funerals would erupt into yeah. more violence and then and I, so I, I was witness to a lot of that you know i photographed many more funerals than mm. i would have liked to yeah. um and, and I saw I saw a lot of pretty brutal, horrifying things. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking it was a, it was a it was a chaotic time. Yeah. I guess it was late eighties, early nineties. Were you shooting as a as a newspaper photographer at that stage? Had you actually been given a job doing it? Yeah. Well, I began. I mean, I sort of managed to somehow get a job on the Star newspaper in nineteen eighty four. Um, without any training and when I arrived on the job I didn't even know how to use a flash gun so it was one of those mm. um, but I think I had quite a raw ability um, at the time so I spent much of 1984 working for the Star newspaper in Johannesburg and at the start of 1985 I actually got a job working for Agence France Press the international news agency so I suddenly found with, you know, in fact I'd been a photographer I was untrained I'd been a photographer for just for under a year and I was suddenly kind of feeding pictures to kind of thousands of newspapers around the world um, and it was, it was yeah it was quite a real I mean and also things were happening all the time there were funerals every weekend it mm. was I mean I was kind of I, and I, I was coming to it quite differently to, there was a lot there were a lot of news photographers the sort of the tough guy news photographers yeah. doing it but 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 I came to edit with a kind of political right. and connections and some political understanding so I think I was quite different to other news photographers yeah well there's the so, so the so-called bang bang club which yeah was, well the bang bang club was kind of came after that right and um because the bang bang club sort of emerged in the area after nelson mandela had been released when there was a lot of conflict between the african national congress oh, okay, so and Andy carter so what was about uh, that sort of really began that they, they began working in the early 90s going through to the end of it and the, fi- the final violent conclusion was all in 94 yeah. Um, when the when the first re-elections, that was they were an early '90s phenomenon. So I was a slightly earlier generation of people in that time, and I mean, and I kind of I suppose like many people of my ilk, we get quite frustrated with all the fame and, um, and all the kind of myth mythological rubbish about the Bang Bang Club. Mm. You know, and I think the, you know they were a group of like dysfunctional, really fucked up, unhappy young <laughs> yeah. young young men who were all kind of aspiring to be. Jim Nachtways, and they, yeah. they, they were trying to be these kind of tough news photographers, um, and in in a way which I found arguably quite distasteful. They were very kind of visually turned on by by what was happening with the kind of so called black and black violence. They were so so they were they were you know the townships were you lived in your white lives and you charged into the townships to kind of photograph the violence and you were searching for the violence and the violence was the commodity, right? Um, which sold and you know but made made their names yeah um and i mean i i mean quite quite amazing i mean my son who's at school in london you know came back from a religious studies class where they've been learning about kevin carter 
Right, really? Yeah, and, and, and these completely false my, you know, myths about Kevin Carter, who I worked with at the star, I knew well at the time, are now taught as like fact in kind mm. of religious, you know, in, 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 in his kind of UK curriculum. You know, yeah. and, and the, this myth that somehow Kevin Carter took the, kid of the, took the picture of the, the child and the vulture yeah. and then, you know, somehow in conscience for the fact that he'd won a Pulitzer Prize as a result yeah. of it, committed suicide, which yeah, is, yeah. you know, that, that there was some kind of chain of causality in that and that was... Yeah, com- like a, com- a sort of com- narrative com- has been created yeah, around yeah, which it. Is complete, which is completely wrong, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know... Um, yeah, and a lot of people, I hope, I mean, hopefully people will, you know, some of the, I keep saying younger uh, listeners, I don't mean to say that in a condescending way, but, you know, people who aren't aware of these characters and, you know, Kevin Carter was was quite a well-known photojournalist who did, uh, unfortunately, uh, take his own life. But, um, yeah, people can can Google him and find out a little bit more, but he was part of this slightly mythologised group of guys out there called, who called themselves a Bang Bang Club. And I think they even ended up making a movie, a yeah, movie yes, about there, it. There's, there's been a movie about it. There's been, I mean, I think... I think the movie is interesting in terms of its kind of depiction of the events at the time. You mm. know, it was quite done quite 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 realistically. But I mean, um, yeah, personally, I think there were a lot of photographers who did amazing work in South Africa in the struggle period, kind of leading up to you know the release of Nelson Mandela. And I think sadly that work has been like in public memory has been superseded by this the force of this idea of the kind of the the, the great Bang Bang Club. And yeah. they were you know. Um, I don't think the work they did was that particularly interesting. I think there were a few good photographs came out of it, mm. but it was more the swashbuckling, yeah, yeah. male, yeah, kind macho of, kind of macho, war macho, photographer, macho war, guy. War, war photographer thing, and and also somehow a, a, a kind of a, a using the way the black violence was used as the fodder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Van Gumpler Club. I, I, I felt deeply uncomfortable with. Yeah, it. sure. And and uh, you know, I mean, I it's kind of understandable when I when I first got into photography, I was fascinated by all that and you know, and and you know, there is a certain kind of allure to it, but when it becomes more about them than it does about the the thing that they're photographing, then obviously that's yeah. a, that's a problem if you're talking about photojournalism yeah. because it's supposed to be about the the thing that you're photographing. But it seems to me you would never have, yeah, you, you're, do you think you're a bit more of a maverick than that? You don't, I can imagine you not really running with the crowd as it yeah, were. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not very good. Well, actually, personally, it's, I mean, and, and, and I, I hate being side by side with other photographers. I hate photo, I mean, and I think it's a weakness in myself. You know, I, I just, if, if, I'm, if I've ever got a photographer next to me, mm. I, I can't help but think, well, what are they photographing? You know, maybe it's better. You know, I, I can't help but looking, looking, looking at what right. they're photographing. I, I hate kind of photographing or working alongside other photographers, mm. and, and that's I don't say that it's not necessarily a good thing about me, but it's just I'm. I'm well, I, think, I, 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 think I work much better when I'm when I'm alone. I think that's uh, a trait that a lot of you know really good photographers have in common with you. And I, we talked about this again. Me and Daniel talked about this because. You know, he was saying that when the refugees were coming in 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 Sicily or or wherever he was, uh, Lampedusa, you know, there's 50 guys there and and you know standing shoulder to shoulder. So what? Why does everyone? You know, what's the point of that many people getting the same picture? In fact, I, th- I think Antonio Olmos, who I interviewed, um, said the best thing anyone ever said to him was if you're if you're standing next to another photographer, you're in the wrong you know you're in the wrong place because yeah. there's no point. So yeah, and then uh, how, what kind of impact did it have? witnessing all all that uh violence well i think i think i probably had some post-traumatic stress you know i think it, i think it really did 
take a lot out of me. And I mean, actually, I began another project at the time. I, I began this project called Living in Yeovil, mm. where I photographed life in the community I lived in, and I, I sort of focused on the kind of a radius of about a mile, a mile around my house, my my home, doing very traditional street photography in some ways. Um, and and it was partly wanting to kind of make work refocus and, and make work which was about where I was living and mm. I began that project in quite a playful way and then in 1986 there was the imposition of the emergency um, which made it illegal to photograph political violence or political events um, which meant a lot of what I was doing became impossible impossible mm. and also I left as AFP and I was working kind of in a freelance way and so I, 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 that kind of made me redouble my efforts to focus on this project which I called Living in Yeovil mm. um, trying to look at the structures of apartheid and relationships in a very intimate personal way um, and in a so kind of trying to always, I suppose there's always been an impulse to make work that's kind of quite close and quite intimate and I think what was interesting was that I think you said that it wasn't until you went back to that work many years later that you kind of suddenly realised that, that the kind of evidence of the kind of crumbling edifice of Apartheid was there in the pictures. Yeah, Can you yes, kind of right. expand on that a little? Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, I kind of, um, I, I, you know, I did, I did this body of work in the nineteen eighties, which I had kind of, you know, it was exhibited at the time and was published quite widely at the time, um, and I sort of forgot about it. You know, I, I, I picked out a few of my favourites, um, but then the, as a body of work, I didn't really think about it much mm. again uh, until um, I was meeting with the curator Okwe Wenzo, who was. You know, very well-known um, curator who was at the time working on a big project called the Rise and Fall of Apartheid, mm. um, and I showed him various bodies of work and various photographs, and I had a pile of prints from that project which I showed to him, and he was very struck by them. I think particularly because he was looking at that era and was seeing a lot of news photography, but wasn't seeing much which was kind of daily to, life, daily life, and trying to, or trying to do do anything different, mm. and. Um, Partly because he didn't have much space to show them in the exhibition, he sort of commissioned me to make a film for the work and gave me the challenge. And he said, you know, look at Chris Marker <laughs> and gave me the challenge of putting these images into some kind of um, time-based video form. Mm. And I, it, was a, it was an amazing process. And I mean, I kind of found a kind of a way of doing it because I didn't want to do some simple slideshow. I wanted to sort of something which was kind of so it was a kind of a it ended up being a contemporary sort of re-evaluation of that work mm. and I went through all my contact sheets and negatives again and I mean the first thing I kind of saw and found was that you know I was like photographing things which I didn't really understand at the time that I was witnessing the kind of social breakdown of apartheid or you know on one level of apartheid resident, certainly a residential apartheid and mm. barriers between black and white um, and you know for example one um Picture I took, you know, I did a lot of photographs at the place called the Yeovil Recreation Centre, which was a, in terms of the Groups Areas Act, was still a whites-only structure um, in the in the Yeovil Park, and um, I photographed a, a tournament that the that the Yeovil Chess Club had on with the Soweto Chess Club, and that had that had special permission, um, that had to get special permission. To, to have the, the black players from Soweto come. But the fact that they had endeavoured to do that was significant. Right. And the picture shows um, a young um, chess prodigy um, who, you know, who was 15, kind of, you know, who, who just 
you know, from the Soweto Club who just beaten all the kind of old men from the yeah, the Yelva Recreation Centre. And um, but I, I think just the fact that although it's, it was legally a whites only space, but it was having a tournament with black players there at mm-hmm. the time. I mean, it, was, it speaks about the many different ways things were kind of breaking down and changing, and there was a kind of transition at the time, which, in some ways, just looking at things so much later, you, you, it gives you kind of some perspective and understanding of what you were seeing at the time. But also what I did to kind of make the narrative work is I kind of broke up the pictures. I sort of, I rather than using the images by themselves, I kind of did a lot of very deep crops and was trying to really understand the pictures by looking at sections of them. So not, not almost as whole pictures, but right. was kind of slicing them into quite small pieces and in the edit and using these different elements in the editing to, to, to make the film. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it became, I think, you know, quite a really interesting way of reapproaching a very old body of yeah. work. And I guess that was your intro to introduction to video because you've worked with video quite extensively uh, in, in more recent years, at least. Yes, I mean, I've, I've, I think... My introduction really was with the Through Positive Eyes project. Mm. Um, you know, and I've, I've, I suppose I've been developing a kind of a, a kind of personal language yeah. with video. And, and I think what I'm, I've always been keen to try to do in my exploration of videos to not make documentaries. Mm. Or not, you know, I've, I've always felt there's so many very skilled, amazing document, documentary makers out there. And I, I don't want to try and be a competing one-man band docu- documentary maker. Mm. Um, I'm interested in trying to use video in unique ways and find my own personal language yeah. for video. Yeah, so you mentioned Through Positive Eyes, which is the sort of, the kind of... Well, it's it's the kind of final... End point, as it were. Yeah, the end point for my... HIV. In, yeah, so exactly. Let's, let's go back to the beginning then and, and kind of start further back with that. So, you know, that's that's taken up a really significant chunk of your professional life, that, that uh, story. Uh, how, how did the did the work with HIV and AIDS first first begin? Well, I mean, I in the kind of early nineties, I, I moved my base for a variety of personal and professional reasons. I, I moved my base to London, um, and I think after the release of Nelson Mandela in South Africa, I felt sort of that I didn't really have any political obligation to stay in South Africa. Mm. At the time, my parents were living in London, and um, at that point in history, in the kind of photographic history, there was a sense that if you wanted to be in the first division of international photojournalism, you had to be either in London or Paris or New York. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's quite interesting how that's completely reversed right. since in the last 25 years since then. In fact, now the periphery is much more interesting than, than, than the centre. And in fact, young people, who, you know, I'd advise a young person, if you want to make a start, go and base yourself somewhere in the per- per- periphery right. rather than, you know, trying to do it from here mm. you know, um, but I, I was based in London and I was part of a photographic agency a kind of photographer owned agency called Network Photographers and in 1993 the agency kind of began a kind of a, a group project about HIV it was tied into the Terence Higgins Trust and the 10th anniversary of the Terence Higgins Trust which is the major HIV and AIDS charity in the UK yeah. Um and I, it was an agency project, and I had actually met some people who were involved in kind of HIV um, work over here. And at that time, AIDS and HIV were kind of terribly scary, horrifying issues, and there was huge fear, huge stigma. And I kind of suggested that I, you know, kind of 
simply photograph in the AIDS ward, you know, work and photograph life in, in the AIDS ward in, in, in London. And um, it was just a point where I think there was an, some kind of need to open up. And, you know, the, the place I worked, you know, I photographed at the Middlesex Hospital, which is the ward where Princess Di famously visited and paparazzi were, you know, outside trying to, you know, kind of train the lens in the places. There was a sense of photography in the media where on the outside and the, you had to be totally defended. And there were some people working there who really felt it was time to try and open up. So I worked with a couple of people who were open to being photographed. And I spent a couple of weeks photographing in the ward. And it was my first experience of HIV and experience of actually connecting deeply with people who who, who, who were living with the disease. And also it was experience of working in a, in a, in a a way where kind of trust and respect and was hugely important. And, you know, I saw things which I couldn't remotely photograph. I could only lift my camera and photograph people who had signed consent forms and, and, and had agreed to be photographed. And, you know, at one point I remember seeing a scene of, there was a very ill Ugandan refugee who was in the, in the ward and he was, he was really sick. And I, they'd bought a portable x-ray machine to x-ray him in the ward and, I saw, you know, they, they set up his machine and there was this light shining on him and he actually, his torso was covered in torture, sc- torture scars. Mm. Oh my God. He'd been tortured and, you know, there's a situation with this extra light shining on his body and it was would have been the most remarkable photograph. Mm. Um, but I, I couldn't take I, it. I couldn't take it. I couldn't, I couldn't remotely lift the camera to, to take mm. it. As it's one of those photographs which are burned in my memory. Yeah. As the, as, Ones you uh, missed. Well, not missed, but are unta- untaken. Get to take, yeah. Um, I also... By chance, it was a life-changing event because I met um, um, a nurse in the ward who was went on to become my life partner and who shares his house with me and I've had children with. Wow! So, um, you know, I met Sarah in the ward, and um, you know, it's also I suppose connected me to issues around mm. health and sexual health and all those kinds of issues. For so, she was a nurse. She was a nurse in the right. ward. Right. Okay. Um, and. So that had a yeah profound effect yeah, on your yeah, personal yeah, life as well yes, as your professional life. Um, exactly, and I um, we did that project. You know, there was an exhibition opening at the Photographers Gallery in London, and it was kind of a start. I mean, you know, and I I felt you know I'd photographed HIV and AIDS in the UK, but it was in fact a much bigger issue and a much less publicly supported issue in in, in some ways in Africa. So. I, Began to feel strongly that I needed to do some work which answered mm. answered that in the in the UK. And I I um, was in Zimbabwe um, doing a shoot for Christian Aid, and I came across a very interesting mission hospital called Matibi Mission Hospital, um, and I arranged with the Dr. Ashwanden, who was in charge of it, to spend some time photographing there. And I, in a way, tried to do do, do a similar thing, and I. That's, I guess, was the start of my journey, which, right. you know, and then really through the 90s, I made as many trips as I could and, mm. you know, photographed um, HIV and AIDS in, in, you know, in Africa and all different dimensions. Yeah. Kind of in, a, in 96, I won the Eugene Smith Award for Humanistic Photography, which mm. both gave me funding to do it, but gave me some kind of physical recognition of the problem. Yeah. Of the project, because at first it was really, really hard to get anyone to take the work I was doing there seriously, um, you know, or, or to give me any kind of support or backing. It was it was a huge uphill struggle with that with that body of work at first. And were you sort of spending your own money f- to fund it at that stage? Because uh, I was I was trying to yeah. I mean, it was always yeah. a cycle of kind of doing work. And yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I was so for example, you know, I was in 
no, Zimbabwe for you know other you know other organisations. You know, so I I, right. I kind of used other projects to kind of yeah, pe- so piggyback. Piggy, piggy, piggyback what I was doing, and I began to do some work on the issue with NGOs. And but yeah, but I was probably putting a huge amount of my own time and mm-hmm. energy and some of my own resources. Um, what was then, it like to win the Eugene Smith? And that's that's one that a lot of documentary photographers would would dearly love to to get. It's it's one of the kind of I guess one of the most desi- desirable awards for documentary photographers. How was that? Um, it was amazing. I mean, it was a really. I think it was I think on one level, you know, of course, the you know the the again the money was great and which helped to fund the project. But mm. I think much more than that, it was you know, a level of recognition. Yeah, and the fact it came after a couple of years of you know. I got it, I think, in 96, and it had only been three or four years of trying to make work and trying to get the issue. So I think acknowledging the issue was significant, mm. that my work was meaningful. And, you know, I had the experience of kind of going to New York and spending time with Cornell Copper and, you know, the ICP. And it, and it was a kind of a, establishing a connection with an organization like the, the ICP and the people there. It just, it was... Opened a few doors, basically. It opened doors, but actually was just, Kind of you know, deeply meaningful for, for, mm. for me personally, and I think um, I, you know, I, I guess I wasn't part of any major kind of big photographic gangs. You know, mm. I wasn't, you know, um, part of Magnum or part of anything. And so, it just it, it made kind of yeah, it, kind it, of validated it, your, my, your my, work. Yeah, yeah. I think that's important. It gave, it gave what I was doing and validation, and, and I had some good supporters before that, but it gave it much wider validation. Mm. And I think, but that it was a, it was kind of almost, it was kind of a golden, maybe it was a golden age for, for photojournalism, that sort of period in the well, mid-90s. What do you think about that? I think in retrospect, I mean, I, I was privileged to, I suppose, work through the last decade of photojournalism. Mm, yeah, the final decade. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and, and it's one of these things that when you're in the middle of it, you have no idea. Of course not, no. Um, that, that's that, that's don't what, know what's going to happen. No, exactly, you have no idea. But I mean, I, what we, you know, you know, for, and obviously, one felt the threat of the kind of obsession with celebrity. We had no idea the digital wave was was coming. No, that's um, right. And yeah. um, but no, no, so so obviously, it was you know that working that time was kind of stressful and put a lot of pressure. And you know, towards the end of the nineties, I, I had young kids, so it was mm. it wasn't easy mm, personally. No. You know, personally, and but I, you know, did a lot, I think a lot of exciting, interesting work. I mean, I think. And I was always combining, I suppose, doing kind of professional assignments and mm. work as being paid for with trying to, you know, work on my my HIV work. Yeah, yeah. And then in at the end of two thousand and one, I had my broken landscape book published, and um, I, I had an interesting experience then, in, in that the exhibition was showing at the National Gallery in Cape Town, and there was an exhibition of big prints on the walls, and. I was aware that at that point there was a very significant kind of battle developing. You know, that antiretroviral medications and drugs were had become available in the West. And, you know, people in America and Europe were, with, with HIV, were able to start taking medications, which actually was, was, was saving them. Whereas people in poorer countries, and particularly in Africa, the millions of people with HIV in Africa were dying horrible deaths. Mm. And... That just felt like a harsh global divide, um, and so when I had that that exhibition in Johannesburg, I connected very strongly with the treatment action campaign, 
And I came up with this idea of using the gallery space, trying to make it an active political space and make work in the gallery. So the, the exhibition was actually up for four months in Cape Town. And we made a sequence of new bodies of work, which we hanged in the middle of the gallery. And what I realized as well is that the black and white work, which is on the walls, in terms of working politically, it was very powerful and very strong, but it was quite scary mm. and quite fear-inducing. And I felt there was work need to make to make work which could work and as as a tool of visual advocacy I need to make something which was kind of not necessarily softer but more accessible. Yeah. And so I began to work in colour. Right. And that was the point of my transition really. Right. To being a colour photographer. And I I've realized recently that actually probably the first half of my career as a photographer, if I if I've been a photographer since nineteen eighty three um, which is like you know, 33 years. Mm. Probably the first half was a black and I was a black and white photographer, and the second half I've been a color photographer. Right. Yeah, so you've and kind of switched. I've, done, I've switched, and so so that was kind of the you know beginning of of work, which was really tied into kind of a to to kind of political issues. Yeah, um, your kind of activism as well, as you've already mentioned that you know that was always part of it. Yeah. And I get, you switched to color. What was your kind of reason, though? Was it because was it to try and make a distinction between, the, you know, one kind of body of work on that subject and and then second body of work on that subject, or to because I, I I did read somewhere that you were kind of at some time you might have been accused of, you know, portraying people as victims oh, or yes, whatever. Exactly. Did that? Did that oh, yes, and, and uh, absolutely. I mean, and and that's certainly in the early phase of my black and white work. I mean, that was definitely you know I was part of photographers who were accused of being victimologists you know mm. kind of portraying black bodies as you know sort of you know you know the, the kind of the lines and the patterns of kind of HIV and AIDS um, you know illness were kind of you know kind of things to take beautiful mm. shocking photographs of um you know, so that, so that was definitely something which I was, you know, arguably kind of justly kind of accused accused of. And I think I think that, I think that what is maybe different about my work is that the narratives and the words that people I was photographing were always very important. So that mm. that, that impact was always softened by the fact that you heard the voice and you saw the voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of the of the people people I was. But you photo- feel that there was some validity to yes, that. Yes, yes. No, absolutely. Um, That's interesting that you're. You know, I'll, I'll, some I'll, people would get very defensive about that. No, and, and I think I think. I think it was important to it's important to respond and to learn yeah you know and 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 I think that was part of my process and I you know the sort of second phase of my work in HIV was making a variety of bodies which were bodies of work which were trying to you know work both in terms of HIV education and mobilization and you know I think it was a work conceptually on, conceptually on a, on a different level, mm. you know. And so I, I did a lot of work th- that year, you know. And we ended up making this really interesting poster set, you know. And I was offered funding to do something with it, and we made a set of thirteen. I mean, we made five hundred copies of thirteen posters, which were widely used and distributed, and right. it's arguably one of the most effective p- things I've done. Um, the work was also published, and I won the um, Amnesty International Media Award for. For, for that work and you know mm. I, th- I think it produced some pretty strong interesting kind of work and I, d- I developed this sort of kind of technique at the time which um, again came out of a complete crisis of making these 
black tape gaffer tape frames which I photographed people in and I mean that emerged out of a again out of a disaster yeah um, in, at the end of 1981 I was in Mozambique I'd been actually been sent there um, by Oxfam to make an HIV AIDS education project which was the idea was that it'd be used local, locally in Mozambique mm. um, and I sat I arrived um, I sat down um, to, and in fact it was the same day as 9-11 I remember that oh really um <laughs> Um, and I sat down for a meeting um, with people from Kindlamuko, which is a, a organization of positive people about whom I'd work with to photograph. And I had this idea that I would photograph some HIV act- sort of advocates who are positive themselves. And um, I sat down for, for a meeting with about 15 people with a Portuguese translator. And after a couple of minutes, the meeting broke up into this huge fight. There were people were shouting at, at, at each other in Portuguese, and I couldn't figure out what the problem was. So my translator sort of tried to explain to me. He said, "Well, the problem is um, there'd been a misunderstanding, and they'd all thought you were taking photographs to be shown abroad. They didn't realise your photographs were meant to be used locally mm. for education, and they had all had problems about being identified." Okay. Um, and that is the pre-internet days where people thought you could have something published abroad which wouldn't identify you know right um, yeah um, and they were saying you know well I can't be shown because my child's at school and it stigmatized my, ch- you know, my child there were all these kind of they were, so they were trying to sort of basically argue about who would be delivered to me to be photographed and I just realized and partly just to save the job I had to make some kind of intervention so I kind of dramatically did something and I, luckily I had a roll of black gaffer tape in my bag and I kind of you know got the room quite and I made a square I made a, a tape or rectangle on the wall and I said to you look I don't want anybody to feel pressured to be photographed here's a space on the wall and it's your space and I'm going to come back and photograph it and you can put whatever you want to into it right, right. and you just have to kind of talk to me and think and, and give me and explain to me you know kind of let me interview you and explain to you explain to me why You've chosen what you've chosen, mm. and what, as it turned out, you know, what I found is that I'd inadvertently kind of empowered them. Yeah, yeah. In the process, and people they got really, really into it, and yeah. And um, there's a few, there's a few situations where people have put an, an, uh, an object in yes, there, but yeah. quite, actually, quite a lot of people just did get in the frame. And yes, yes. Some people chose to get in the frame. Some people just to hide themselves in the frame. There was always, you know, but I think, yeah. But it was sort of that. That was whatever they put in the frame was completely their choice. Right. Um. And it was yeah an interesting process for me, and I used I suppose that technique that technique of the black frame I then used substantially in that context and elsewhere as well. Right, right, yeah. Um, so like you say, you turn you again you turned a bit of a disaster into into something you know creative. Yeah, uh, yeah. You seem to be quite good at that. It seems to be I think that's a that's a very useful knack to have, isn't it? <laughs> Both kind of thinking laterally in a yeah, situation, how yeah, to how totally. to. But the, the next phase of my work on HIV, which really began in 2008, is a project called Through Positive Eyes, which is a collaborative project which is established with a kind of unit at UCLA. Um, I made contact with a lecturer at UCLA called David Gere, who initially invited me to work with his students, but I then worked with his organization called the Art and Global Health Center to build this project, which is a collaborative global project. And it came out of a realization that at a point when the fight for equal access to medication 
maybe not always practically, but certainly globally and intellectually had been won that it was right to provide free HIV medication to people around the world. That became clear that one of the biggest killers was stigma. And my sister, who's in fact an HIV doctor in Cape Town, told me at one point around then that she finally had access to really good set of medications and she could treat people with HIV. But she still had so many people dying mm. because they were coming to treatment too late. Um, and that was largely because of stigma. Right. So it felt that there was some kind of need to build a project which put the voices of HIV-positive people at the centre of the narrative and would address stigma. So the idea was, so, so we built this project working with groups of HIV-positive people in different cities around the world, and we've worked in 10 different cities, always working with groups of people and t- giving them small cameras to work with and g- giving them a very substantial but brief photographic mm. um, education. And I think the work... Has, has come out of it has been remarkable and I think it's a really interesting quite coherent global collaborative project which yeah. has now kind of come to its end right. but I think that, so that really was my last kind of, yeah, kind well, of closing statement on HIV and we had felt appropriate to hand the camera over to exactly. HIV positive yeah, people you've and, moved into a more of a kind of curatorial yeah well I, I see myself rather being the photographer I'm the frame maker yeah, yeah. you know that I, that I and I've made these videos which kind of frame the work of the HIV positive people mm. and we've made a set of you know about 120 sh- short videos which I think are a really interesting kind of long term resource yeah, yeah and I'm hoping to eventually maybe make some kind of longer videos which will, which will you know put people's narratives together in kind of more interesting ways mm. um, so so that 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 is kind of the conclusion of my HIV. Sure, work. and that's so. That, and then um, I should I should say. I mean, I'll put I'll put it all in the notes on on the website. But that has its own website, which yes, is yes. throughpositiveeyes.org. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, throughpositiveeyes.org. So you can look at that. Yes, work. And, and there's a huge amount of material there. You yeah, know, you know. And, um, yeah, yeah. So that that was you felt like that was the full stop at the end of that. Well, I, I kind of think of that project. I think that was the kind of final chapter of my HIV work. And, mm. And it came partly out of the feeling that I had nothing left to say as a photographer myself, and it was time to, for HIV, HIV positive people to make their own photographic statements. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm interested. I mean, I have some other thoughts and possibilities of developing other other different kinds of collaborative projects. So you know, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm finished with no, HIV because no. it's still a huge, massive issue, particularly in Southern Africa and you know other parts of the world. Sure. It's, it's not a, the issue hasn't gone away. No, it's very much not. It's very much off the news agenda, Absolutely. as it were, and, yeah. and it's kind of gone gone into the back. And again, I'm, I keep saying it, but some of the younger listeners will not. Uh, have been around to remember just the extent of of the problem at the time when you were doing um, a broken landscape. You know, yeah. it was it was a massive global epidemic or whatever and you want to call it. Actually, quite an alarming thing that young gay men, for example, in this country are now growing up without right. a lot of the HIV education. And actually, there's been an alarming spike in infections in, in you know right. kind of young people because a lot yeah. of what we took as granted has been kind of forgotten and there's also a kind of complacency of feeling that with medications around it's not that terrible to be infected right, which actually right. it's is a terrible terrible misapprehension because it's yeah. living with hiv is even with medication available is still not a nice way to live your life no it's it's, it's a bit like uh, yeah it's a bit like being kind of cavalier about stds or something because you can always go and get some you know yeah. penicillin but it's not it's not the same as that at all no, it's no, a very abs- very different ball yeah, game absolutely okay so um so that brings us on to to your m- much more recent current project which is um called drowning world now it's it's an environmental story. You've 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 kind of had an interest in environmental stories for, for a very long time, yeah. haven't you? From the beginning, I, I had. I mean, I think around about two thousand and four, two thousand and five, I was kind of looking around to try and 
find a way of addressing climate change. Mm. And, you know, I began to read about it and I think also with young kids began to worry about it. Yeah. You know, and I thinking, you know, in the middle, in the middle of the century when, when my kids are at the peak of their lives, um, you know, what, you know, they'll be in their 50s, mm. what will... The world look like what will the world's climate be, and how you know how negatively will it will it will it affect them? And uh, but the reading I was doing, I began to get really kind of concerned, and also being a photographer, I began to kind of look and sort of investigate the imaging of climate change, and found what I saw, I thought kind of very unsatisfactory. I thought, you know, there was for me there was a lot of very beautiful work, um, a lot of images of glaciers and polar bears and the threatened polar bears and it felt very distancing mm. it felt very white in many levels um and i didn't it, and, and not very human and very personal and i was wanting to find a way to kind of show the eyes show you know kind of confront people with the victims of climate change and make it a much more personal yeah personal kind of thing so um i mean initially i had this idea of doing something which was kind of um a typology of victims of climate change. I thought, well, maybe I'll photograph victims of drought and victims of flooding and victims of fire. You know, that I'd, right, I'd photograph right. a variety of victims. And I actually initially did a trip to um, Kalacha in the north of Kenya, um, in an area which is being, you know, hugely affected by drought and this, you know, terrible drought moving down Africa. And, um, you know, so it, it, I, I kind of... And it, it kind of coincided with a point when I was also kind of experimenting with using old Rolleiflex cameras and approaching things with kind of a portraiture sort of approach mm. using, using these old cameras. So that was all kind of coming together. And I, in 2007, um, I photographed a flood in the UK. Um, and, you know, very shortly after that began, you know, we actually went to a flood in India within a couple of weeks. And I was kind of struck by kind of, you know, just certainly from, from the portraits that, that I'd made in both countries, having struck by a sense of shared vulnerability, mm. despite vastly different circumstances. You know, that, that I found that you know, the, the people I photographed mm. in the UK and India, they, there was something shared. Yeah. And I just, I don't know by accident, by circumstance, I'm not quite sure how it happened, but I kind of hit upon this, idea of doing portraits of people in flood water right and so you can't remember how that came to you i I just i think i was photographing i met some people and and it just it was a kind of an accident and circumstance it was it just happened in the field and i and you know so that was the beginning of this journey and i've since then i've endeavored to photograph floods in as many countries as i can Mm. i mean again it hasn't always been easy to get there to get the funding and you know and the logistics of doing these trips are quite hectic. Yeah, I imagine. Um, you know, it's a the finding the funding to get there. It's being able to operate safely. Yeah, it's being able to move around. It's you know, it's a and working in some countries which are not easy to work in. Yeah, yeah. You know, notably having worked in places like like Nigeria. Yeah. You know, just the logistics are very very difficult. Were you aware, kind of going in when when it became uh, something that you knew you were going to do as a project? Were you aware of the scale of the thing? You know, having sort of done the the HIV thing, um, which you know, I think we went to eight countries. So you kind of, you know, you know what doing long term projects is all about. But were, were you kind of? Did, did you? It's it's always hard to know what you're thinking. I mean, at the time, I think I, I felt I was onto something. 
you know, I felt, and again, it's one of those situations where at first it was very hard to gather, you know, you know, I, I had some people who were interested and who responded quite strongly at first. Mm. Um, interestingly, some people who'd really been um, big advocates of my earlier work were not that keen. I mean, I mean, Colin Jacobson is an old friend and someone who I admire hugely. He was the picture editor of the Independent magazine yeah. and was very interested in my kind of early HIV work, the documentary work, and was a big advocate and supporter of my work and is a very interesting thinker about documentary photojournalism. I mean, his response early on was, you know, he said, Gideon, I find these images faintly preposterous. You know, why do you want to pose people and position them? Can't you just right. be a, you know, you're, you're a good photographer. Can't you just be a photographer in that situation? Why do you have to... Hmm. Construct, why do you have to construct it? Right. So again, um, he's got, it seems Colin's got a very incredibly old school um, attitude then in that case towards documentary in the sense that it, there's something that doesn't sit well with him because you've set the thing up or whatever. Yeah, I mean, with full respect and love for, for, for Colin. Yeah, sure, of um, course. In, I mean, it's know, subjective, it, right? Yeah, yeah it's, it's subjective. And, 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 I, and I think he, um, yeah, I mean, and, and I think he was uncomfortable with the, extent that I was needing to kind of maybe control and construct in those situations mm. and I mean for me I suppose it became an interesting collaboration where I would work with people and and you know some in some situations they would take me back to the homes and I would position them in the best place at their homes to photograph and that, that's sometimes light and color and background mm. so I'm, I'm I'm not just coming across these people in a particular situation uh, they you know and I'm obviously in different circumstances for every country, and sometimes I encounter people in their homes, sometimes in a, somewhere near the, near their homes, but often there's there's a journey with the, with the, I make with them back, you know, back to their homes. Yeah, yeah. And as the project went on, you know, for the first couple of countries, I was really only shooting stills, um, and then at a certain point, I thought, and I suppose also as video was becoming part of my practice, I began to bring along a video camera mm. and began to bring video into the process as well. Um, and in particular, you know, what I think has been uh, so part of it was, you know, kind of so. So that in fact, the journey when people take me to the homes and moving around with people becomes part of part of the narrative of what yeah, I'm yeah. documenting. Um, but also, I think what works very strongly are the the video submerged portraits. So that often when I'm doing the portraits of um, the people in their in their in their homes, um, you know, I will shoot the still and then I'll put my 5D camera on a tripod right. and shoot a video portrait as well. And there's yeah. something, there's a, there's a very unique tension in those pictures because mm. people are posing and standing as if they're in photographs yeah. and they're very still often um, and the water and mm. things are moving around them. Mm. Yeah. And that's kind of quite... Yeah. I was going to ask you, how do you not find it kind of a bit of a challenge to kind of serve both those those masters, the video and the stills at the same time? Isn't, isn't that a bit of a... A a head fuck. It, it is truly a deep head fuck. But I've kind of made it work. And mm. I think it's also deciding like certain elements. You know, previously I would do the portraits. At the early start, I'd do the portraits and I would also do some sort of documentary images at the same time. And what I'd, so I, I gave up doing documentary style stills. And in those situations, I would always just focus on the video. So when I'm doing a portrait, my first priority is to get a good still. Yeah, of course, yeah. So, yeah. That, so that's that's the first thing. And then once I feel I've got that, then I'll shoot right. a video portrait as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I try and carve out time to do that properly. Mm. But I think it's made further difficult the fact that I'm not using the same device. You know, if I was, sure. you know, the fact that I'm, had I been shooting the portrait on a on the 5D as well as the video, it would be 
a lot easier. Much easier, yeah. But the fact that I've got different devices and actually working with those rolly flexes is complete insanity. I mean, there's no logical reason why I do it because no. they're heavy to carry around. Mm. They are really impractical. They break down. Yeah. They add, are... Add to the fact that you're standing in, in, in you know, waist deep in Yes, in exactly. In the most difficult zone to work with these big, old, mm. bulky cameras. Mm. And, I mean, to add to that, I mean, in the time since we've begun the project, you know, the quality of digital cameras has improved so much that actually is probably not a massive imp- mm. advantage in terms of shooting on film. No, no. In terms of the kind of file size that you yeah. kind of find. Can but it's more about the process, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, exactly. So it's a, more about the process and the kind of theatre mm. of what I do. And I think involving people, you know, just being a person, you know, having these kind of big cameras and loading yeah. the film kind of somehow... Adds something. Adds, adds something to the situation. And it, 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 it gives does, it a, uh, maybe gives it some kind of a... a there's a weight to it. Yeah, yeah, there's a kind of theatre and, and, yeah. and, and a weight to it, which people sometimes kind of respond to. And actually, I mean, just because it's... I mean, when the floods happened in York last last year, as an experiment, partly because I was just really blown away by the kind of cost of... You know, films getting, getting so expensive mm. and the cost and the hassle. Um, and also the fact that when I was on my previous trip to, to America at the end of last year, one of my Roddy Flexes... I was working with the focus wasn't working properly so half my film was out of focus uh. um, and you know it was just really frustrating and I, and I, I was I attempted as an experiment to sh- in York I went up there for three days and then I tried to shoot only digitally to see if I could match it right and the portraits were just not just didn't mm. work you know I think I needed and I think it's probably just maybe partly in my own head in the relationships mm. I just couldn't get the same the, 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 the same depth in the portraits working working digitally. I mean, I think the thing is often said about, you know, using a, a Rolleiflex is that when you're looking down, you haven't got the thing up to your face. You're exactly. looking down yeah, on it. So there is, there is that. I think a lot of portrait photographers who've experimented with different ways of doing it would testify to that. You know, there isn't that. Yeah, there's, there's more of a direct eye-to-eye eye, yeah. eye contact and communication. But also in response to sort of Colin's uh, criticism in a way, you know, I think that, the fact that the way that you've done it, like you say, is more of a collaboration. There's at least it, it removes any possibility of um, you know a- accusations of exploitation or, or or the fact that you you're you know as as documentary people often accuse you know you're kind of steaming in there in people's most um, difficult time and bang 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 and you know you're not doing that. Well, I mean, arguably, I mean, I am definitely going into those people's lives and difficult moments. Mm. I mean, I, th- I mean, I. Do, I've had a lot of amazingly positive responses from the people I photographed, and I mean, I, I, I'll give an example. You know, kind of Florence Abram, who's a woman I photographed in in Nigeria, um, in Igbogeni in 2012, and I mean, what I'd done in 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 fact, when I was working in Nigeria, on the advice of the fixer I was working with, he said, he said to make a very set standard deal you have with people. Mm. That I was working with people who'd lost so much and they were in a, quite a bereft state, and they naturally would want something from me. Um, so I set up an arrangement where, where I gave $30 to people in exchange for taking me to the home and photographing them and interviewing them. That was, that was sort of a standard deal right. um, I had with people. And um, I met Florence in this sort of camp for displaced people at the age of the age of Igbogeni, and she took me to her, her, her home and her bakery. And she was a small businesswoman. She had a bakery. She'd employed 25 people, and about another 50 people apparently made a living from taking her bread and selling it elsewhere. Right. And she showed me, you know, her destroyed ovens and machinery, all her stock of 
flower which was destroyed i mean she not it's not a society where people have insurance so she had no insurance she had lost everything and i mean she was just a very stoic powerful person and you know she led me through a house and i I did i think one of the my favorite portraits of her and at the end of things when i tried to give her the 30 dollars she said to me no I, i don't want your money um i want you to show what's happened to me and i think there's a sense of like what i offer people some kind of witnessing of, 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 of what's happened to them and I, th- I think many people really do, do do appreciate it I mean I shared the photographs with them and it's it's you know obviously obviously some people do say no not mm. everyone says yes but a lot, a lot of people are keen to be part of it yeah and you know I, I, I and it's, it's a strange moment because I encounter people as you say at a moment of great distress but also it's a moment when things are kind of flo- it's a kind of floating moment when the water's there and, you, and you, your house is flooded you can't do very much you know you, once the water's gone the nightmare begins and you have to clean away the mud right, and sort right. everything out when there's water's there often people want to be at their homes they want to witness they want to try and do something but there's nothing they can really do yeah maybe salvage a few possessions or, and yes maybe salvage stuff or just protect it or you know but it's, it's a very you're kind of helpless yeah it's a helpless moment mm. so that, that's often the moment when i when i and that's a more point where I'm making that sort of connect, and, and that point of connection, that point of engagement for drowning world is, is a key thing because they are, are almost all portraits of people gazing directly at the camera. Um, you know, the accusing gaze it's been called. I mean, I don't want to give it any kind of particular character, but it's about just I suppose making a moment of connection. And you know, I mean, people have spoken about the portraiture being a sort of a a struggle between the photographer and the subject. You know, for a kind of a wrestling match of some sort yeah. and that the best portraiture comes from an equal equal match when neither side wins right right that's a <laughs> and, nice way of thinking um, about it yeah um john sarkovsky said that actually, right but irving penn right interesting <laughs> interesting i've um, never heard that and that you know so so there's that and and I, and I like to think that there's quite an equality in that sort of moment and i think if you've been to many floods around the world something about being in a flood zone that i find very compelling you know something about being there and the fact that everything is upside down, nothing's where it's meant to be. Um, you know, often in a city, there's no traffic, there's no noise, there's just bird sounds. So there's uh, a sort of stillness. There's to a it. stillness to it, and, and a kind of something that's kind of visually for me quite remarkable: the reflections, the color, the light. Mm. So it's like a, a kind of an otherworldly zone. Yeah, yeah. Which I kind of I dream about. I, I and and to my shame, in some ways, I yearn to go back to. The thing about fl- flooding is, it, you know, th- there's no drama to it in a way. It's kind of, it's, you know, it's it seems almost not too big a deal. And yet it's massively destructive. And it's, you know, it's about, it's, it's, a, it's a symbol of, of, of the wider problem, which is climate change, obviously. Yeah. But I do yeah. find that maybe people don't even associate yeah. those two things necessarily. Well, I think some people do, but many people don't think of it at the time and and i think it's important thing to state that my, that my work isn't evidence it's more metaphor mm. sometimes we evidence you know and scientifically of, of all the different floods i've photographed there's a lot of debate about some of them to what extent they're linked into climate change or not some are very obviously climate change linked. some are less so so you could if you if you're taking a completely scientifically rational approach you could probably poke a lot of holes in my rationale mm. But that's the point. I'm, I'm not trying to photograph this as evidence. I'm trying to. F- it's it's the flood is more metaphor than evidence. And then various other narratives have emerged. There's this series of what I call floodlines. Mm. You know, so aside from 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 the portraits, I've kind of made a series of images of the line of flood water as it moves through personal space, through public spaces, and I mean part of my 
rationale with this is trying is trying to kind of create order out of chaos. Is that mm. these are very chaotic situations, and I'm trying to make images which are very precise and geometrical, um, and quite strangely calm images. Um, but then a very kind of big element, I suppose, is the series I call Watermarks, which again emerged out of a, out of a disaster. <laughs> Um, that you know, in, in when I went to the floods in in Haiti in two thousand eight, um, th- I'd spent five days trying to get into Gonaive, where the river. You know, much of you know the history of the time, but uh, you know we've just experienced terrible floods in Haiti. Mm. Then, in the space of a month, Haiti had been hit by four devastating That's hurricane, right, yeah. hurricanes, yeah. and in the worst of them, um, the city of Gonaive had been flooded. The river Quinte had burst its banks. About two thousand people had died. Mm. The, town was completely devastated and it was impossible to get there you couldn't drive there um you couldn't get a boat there um the only way in was in a u.n helicopter <laughs> right and i'd spent five days trying to make my way um you know onto the helicopter eventually got on and then in my first you know it was the town was a remarkable scene but in my first kind of few hours of photographing both my cameras fell in the water. Oh no! Um, both my, uh, I had two Rolleiflex cameras. One of them, it began pouring with rain, and the other strap broke. Oh. And uh, when I was in someone's room, photographing her, and my so-called assistant who was helping me turned around and knocked over the tripod <sighs> into the water. <laughs> into the water. Oh man! Um, and I had a backup 5D Mark One with me, and but I didn't bring a backup battery charger. And the battery charger had broken. Oh, God. And I couldn't find anyone there with another charger, so I couldn't... My 5D wasn't working. Yeah. Um, so all I could do was work with these Rolleiflexes. i dry them out, and they're like boxes with lenses. Mm. So for the next two days, I kept on trying to work, um, putting film through the cameras, um, and until they literally sort of stopped... They kind of rusted and stopped... <laughs> Kind of jammed, jammed to a halt. Yeah, um, gave up. They get, they get, they get, they gave up the ghost. And um, when I got my film back, most of it was really badly fucked up. Right. Depending on the amount of um, humidity inside the camera, which was changed according to the temperature, right. there's different levels of kind of um, impact on the film that I shot. Mm. And I was pretty upset about it at first, but also I kind of had a realization that there was something very interesting about. Um, the floodwaters having a direct impact on the film. Yeah. Um, and that sparked my interest. And trying to think about, you know, I was trying to think about different, you know, when I went to Pakistan after that, I had deb- I debated whether I should throw my film in the water and see what, what it would do, but I <laughs> didn't do that. But then um, my next flood I went to in Australia, I came across a pile of personal snapshots, which uh, a road had been cleared of debris. And, um, you know, this, this part of parts of Brisbane had flood water, which was double the height of the roofs. Oh my God! But it came and went very quickly, and I actually missed most of it. Right. Um, but very, there was this industrialized, incredibly quick response with the military and civil society, and everything was ripped out of the houses into the roads, and then these huge trucks came and picked everything up, and everything was cleared away. It was all contaminated. Whereas in other poor countries, stuff would have been saved. Everything yeah. was contaminated and sent to the dump. So at the end of a day, when the street had been cleared, I found a pile of personal photographs on the floor. And they'd all been, you know, they were all still wet. Mm. And there was a really interesting chemical thing going on with different kinds of colours. And 
that was the start of a whole process, a whole journey for me of kind of building up an archive of flood-damaged images. Yeah, yeah. And so this is a series I call Watermarks. Yeah. And so there's something very abstract and emotional and painterly yeah. about these images. Yeah, and it's sort of in a tradition of found using found photography, yeah. but you're using it definitely within, you know, the context of your story or your subject. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so, this, so that's been a really interesting sort of journey of collecting those images. And it's taken me a long time to figure out what to do with them. Initially, I thought I needed to crop them and make square images and try and make them mine, try and re-photograph them to make them mine. Right. But that, in the end, didn't really work. And the, the way I kind of resolve the issue eventually for some exhibitions I've had recently is to actually work on scanning them in a way where the edges are very, very clear. And that mm. I made some huge prints, you know, really, really big prints, you know, 1.2 meters um, from these small photographs. And the idea is that I'm showing them as objects that they actually are images of objects as opposed to images in themselves right so showing the borders and the edges of them is is is, yeah, is, yeah. is crucial to me mm. and um ironically after developing this whole interest um i found that some material which i had neglected and stored very badly in south africa which i'd left some some boxes of art takes and negatives from my work photographing the struggle in south africa in the 1980s had been water damaged Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that had, had rain had fallen on them, and I found this box of material which had a layer of film which was sort of water and mold and, mo- and had water and mold on mm. them. And again, you know, although this might be seen as a disaster, I actually thought, wow, this is quite amazing. And they, they, they for me, speak really into this da- series, which, which I call Damage, it's become an interesting series and a reflection yeah. on, you know, kind of history and idealism i mean that's 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 one of them right right um you know so it's you know kind of so taking some of my early images from the 80s and putting them through the same process you know it's just yeah. quite an ironical thing that 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 yeah, that, yeah. That, 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 that that has happened and the and, echo of the of the of the flood yeah stuff and and you know so the the last element of drowning world which is the is it's been this growing kind of video component and i've made a series of short films which i call the water chapters that's a, that's a short film that i make as a response to every country that I've been to, and um, or actually with the countries since I began shooting video, and the kind of logic of them to some extent is, well, I suppose that I've created my own rules. Yeah. I'm trying very hard to not make document, not 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 make a documentary, not make things which are strictly narrative, mm. um, and I, I never. Um, cut in any situation. I never sort of try reverse angles or use conventional editing kind of cutting language. Right. I try and make them work that each each image, each shot works in its own terms, kind of visually, photographically, in terms of time. Um, so I thought, you know, so they kind of, they really, des- they work best in kind of gallery contexts. Yeah, yeah. And, and they've shown in a variety of kind of galleries. They're, they're not trying to be kind of documentaries in any yeah. way. Um, and the so, project as a whole... Is there going to be a book? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, the, the problem with doing a book is at what point do I put a line under it and well, say, okay, it's finished. Yeah, I mean, I do have, a have, a, have a lot of interest and I don't feel quite finished. Right. But I hope to do a book within the next year, maybe sooner. Um, and in terms of video, my ultimate ambition as a kind of conclusion of the video element is I hope to make a five-channel multi-screen installation. Right. Which could work, be quite a really interesting way of kind of putting situations and issues side by side putting different countries side by side that'd be awesome yeah, so, so there are all these so, and, and the challenge with all these different narratives emerging is just figuring out how they're all going to work together in relation to each other right let me ask you a couple of extras are you are you kind of in terms of your income 
pie chart, as it were. How do you, wh- where does most of it come from? Is it from commercial work? Is it from editorial commissions or is, it, is there a whole, is it a whole bunch of different things? Well, I mean, editorial, com- com- well, commercial work has never really worked in terms of like sort of, I don't know, advertising, corporate, that kind of stuff. Not that, your that, that just, it's not my beef. I mean, I've tr- made many, various attempts to try and enter that world, but it just doesn't work for me. Mm. So I'm not a successful commercial photographer in, in, any, right. in any means. Right. I have spent many years being a kind of jobbing, shooting editorial photographer, um, but that has kind of died for me. You know, I've done a little bit of work, but I mean, I think the last proper commission I did was in February where I went to Nepal for Christian for Christian aid for two weeks. So that sort of work is interesting, but it's not much left of it. And I think in general, there's less of it happening and probably, I don't know, maybe it's an age thing, you know, for all yeah, kinds of reasons. Multifactorial. Multifactorial. So that is not much of an income stream for me anymore. I was, until recently, make, earning some reasonable income from stock sales mm. of my earlier work. Right, your archive. Uh, of my archive. Mm. So income stream has been through sales of work, Hopefully, increasingly through sales of prints, sales of image rights, but it's a struggle. I mean, kind of awards, grants, yeah. um, you know, but it's not, um, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm kind of in a financially secure position. No. Um, I mean, what's significant for me is, you know, f- for the last nine months, I've been represented by Access Gallery in New York. So I'm sort of now kind of properly kind of gallery rep- represented right. in, in Access Gallery. Um, you know, did a solo stall of my work at the at the One Five Four Art Fair mm-hmm. in London, which I think was a very interesting Great. exercise. And you know, we kind of showed some quite challenging, you know, interesting work. But you know, I think it's also interesting putting work out in a position in that world where it kind of can mm-hmm. sell. And, and I hope print sales will work to kind of help me kind of fund my projects as well, because that's yeah. a, that's always the challenge: is how do you how to fund what I yeah, do? Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of good in a way to hear. Oh, it's just in some way reassuring to hear that someone of your kind of stature in the business, in the sense that you've been, you know, been doing it for for a long time, and you, you know, survived um, up to now. That you, you know, you still have those challenges, and you still. I, I mean, I don't have any illusions. I mean, I'm financially completely fucking insecure. <laughs> right. I mean, I do live in a. I'm lucky enough um, that you know my partner twisted my arm and made me buy a house with her, and then. You know, in twenty years ago, so well, that was a genius move. Yeah, which, is, which happened completely against my will. Right, I was a reluctant partner because I didn't want the commitment at the time. You're going to have to be grateful for that for, for the rest of your yeah, life. Yeah, so 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 I, I have the security of having, you know, this living space, yeah. and you know, uh, you know, so you know, I, I am, you know, I, I have this kind of space to work from, which mm. is you know is 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 great, but the financial challenges yeah. are are, um, are ever-present and yeah. I, I certainly don't feel I can sit back with any kind of complacency sure but despite that yeah it's I been mean, it's I, been a great I, I've, ride I've, I've, I've always felt that if I do work that's right for me if I do work that's meaningful for me that money will eventually take care of itself and I've, you know in fact Every time I've sort of tried to work purely for money and no other reason, it doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a lot of people It's say usually that. a disaster, you know. You know, we're, you know, doing work that's kind of meaningful for me usually pays for itself yeah. and helps me, at, at some level helps me maintain mm. my family in a kind of a, in a London middle-class lifestyle, which is not a, not a cheap thing to do. No, not at all. <laughs> um, so what keeps you motivated? What, what you know, what... what? Um, I have a lot of ideas, you know. I'm always, I'm, I have a lot of, I have more ideas than I can cope with, you know. You know, I've always got different things I want to be doing and I've got many different new projects and many different ideas, many things I'm, I have a whole body of work I want to 
do a project with the work of my my grandmother was quite an interesting photographer and I want to do something with her work and her albums from Germany in the 1930s I have a whole swathe of new projects and ideas I hope to pursue in the future and I I don't feel complete with Drowning World and I mean the question with Drowning World is if I finish it or do I see the book and final exhibition as a comet before concluding or Mm. do I you know because floods are always going to keep happening I've also been thinking of, you know, maybe I move, you know, onto another element or having done water, maybe I could move onto earth or fire. So there are various ideas going on. Yeah, so that could keep you, that could keep you busy for, for some, some, some time, years yes, to I, I've got no short, you know, the, the problem really is keeping myself going and yeah. kind of, you know, physically and, you know, emotionally and everything, um, financially. All right, well, good luck with that. I th- I'm sure that will all work out because, you know, you've, you've stood the test of time so far and I, can, I see no reason why you can't continue to do that. <laughs> well, thanks, that's very reassuring. <laughs>